Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Good morning. Good morning. How many of you guys um, have a fear of flying? I okay. Keep your hands up. I wanted to actually look around. Okay. Not too many, but a few. Okay. I have done a fair bit of um, flying, I suppose, for somebody my age. Um, and I've never really had a problem with it. I remember when I was young, my mom handed out gum to us on, on our way up into the air and chew this so your, your ears don't pop. And I did, but, you know, I got past that at a certain point. I don't chew gum anymore. I don't really have that big of a fear of flying. But I was trying to remember the trip that I went on recently in more recent years. Um, I had no problem going up in the air. I had no problem flying over probably the Atlantic Ocean. I had no problem looking out at the cities and the cars below me. Um, But as we started to get near the destination, we made what was called and often announced over the intercom the, the final descent, right? You, heard, you remember pilots saying, okay, we're coming around for the final, final, final approach, final landing. It was really turbulent. And I don't really have a fear of flying, but man, I was concerned. You know, you, if you get a, a seat near the window with the wing and you see those things starting to flex and bow. And I've got friends that work on planes and they explain the kind of testing that goes into making sure a plane is up to snuff and that all the rivets are good. And I know all that, but still, when you're in this big old plane and it's starting to flap like it's a bird in the air, my legs starting to get a little shaky, I start to have all sorts of fear about what's gonna happen. Because honestly, like if you go down over the ocean, there's some level of, uh, you know, there's, there's floaty devices that'll save your life. They tell you that before you get in the air, right? But if you go down on the, on the, on the track, if those wheels give out and right into the concrete of the landing pad, most of the most horrific plane landings I've seen are actually right in that final descent. And I gotta tell you, I don't remember where I was going, but it really, really scared me. It was a very, very hard landing. And the reason I I bring that up this morning is I just want to warn us all that we are in for a bit of a hard landing in the study on Judges, all right? We are in chapter 17 this morning. Um, Judges is 21 chapters long, and there's two primary stories, uh, two primary historical accounts that we're going to end with, uh, one today in chapters 17 and 18, and then we'll finish out the remainder of the chapters next week. And just at the, as with the beginning of the book of Judges, I know that was back in May, but if you try and think back to what we learned about in May, the beginning sort of has a double introduction. You get started into the book, and it begins that, with the fact that Joshua has died, but then it, there's a couple of stories that actually go back in time after it announces that Joshua has died. It goes back, we remember thinking about Caleb and about Othniel, his future son-in-law, and all those things actually happen before the formal time of the judges gets started, before that first judge appears. And like at the beginning, one of the literary features of this book is that the end has sort of a double conclusion. So if you, any of you kids have parents who have bookshelves and they have those like bookends that hold up your books on top of the mantle, this is almost like having two of those bookends holding up all the books in the middle, all right? There's a double introduction, there's this double conclusion. And so chapter 17 through 21, those five chapters I mentioned, tell two stories to illustrate for us the final state of Israel at this time, and they really provide for us a low watermark. There have been many troubling stories in this book as we've gone through it together. But I want to say that at the end here, these stories and these accounts are our most troubling of all. And the reason is not that the sins committed are necessarily worse, 
but it's that God no longer responds. That's the big difference. You get to the end of Judges, and it's like it just kind of trails off down this winding spiral downward. And God no longer responds to the people. God no longer has any indication of feeling compassion and raising up a savior or a judge to send to bring deliverance to his people. At the end of the book, it's as if God wants to give us a picture of what it looks like to be turned over to our desires. Remember that Romans teaches that there comes a time where God will turn us over to our desires if we resist his will. And so we've been in this book together, and we've seen a picture time and time again of people resisting the will of God, and at the end here, it's as if God is handing them over. Now, these two conclusions that I've spoken of form the end of the book, and they are connected in a number of ways. There's a lot of content. We are not going to cover five chapters in two Sunday mornings, okay? Um, But because we're not going to spend lots of time going into all the details of those chapters, I want to say that these two two stories that make up the five chapters are very, very connected. Um, Chapter 17 and 18, which we're going to look at this morning, tell the tale of Israel trying to keep up appearances and posture themselves as being something that they were not. Whereas, in chapters 19, 20, and 21 that follow, uh, it's revealed that the nastiness and depravity of the Israelites lay just beneath the surface. So in, in, in 17 and 18, they're trying to sort of pretty themselves up. In 19, 20, and 21, we are getting... an inside look at just how depraved and how how terrible men and women can be without God. Uh, Both conclusions deal with Levites. The first story that we're going to look at today, it, it tells us of a Levite who traveled from Bethlehem in Judah to the hill country of Ephraim. And the second tells of a Levite who traveled to Bethlehem in Judah from Ephraim. So it's like these two Levites cross each other in the night as as we go from 17 and 18 into 19, 20, and 21. Uh, Both conclusions trace the failures and the sins of Israel's leaders, specifically the Levites. And if you remember the Levites, who were they? What was their tribe about? Well, they were the tribe that was set apart even in God's special people within those special people of God, the Israelites, the Levites were the tribe that were set apart for holy ministry and work in the tabernacle and in the future temple. And then finally, I want to say that both conclusions help us see how the unity and the love of God's special people is really blown apart at the seams because of the sins that we've been talking about over the last several months. So these chapters are very connected. I know that if you've read through Judges, you may have gotten to the end and thought, what on earth is going on? I don't get this. It doesn't seem to fit. It seems like, you know, something, it seems like an addition, you know, a home addition that was put on and looks really disjointed with what stood before. No, these are supposed to be here. They're they're here for a purpose and they are connected. And they're here to teach us. This double conclusion is unified by one more thing, and that is the repetition of a certain refrain, and it goes like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. It's said four times in the midst of those closing chapters, four times. This refrain emphasizes the sad reality that Not just that there wasn't no physical king, because they had never had a king before. But this is emphasizing the fact that they would not have a spiritual king either. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did what they wanted to. So as we said at the beginning of the summer, this this is the day in which we live. We are a nation of rebellious people. And we often do whatever we want to, whatever seems good to us. So Judges serves as a warning, 
of where this type of living, where this type of action leads to. We must take warning and search our hearts to see if there is any offensive or rebellious way in us, as David said in Psalm 39. That's what we are to do even this morning as we look at the Word of God. We must also see the glory and the goodness of God even in these chapters that are quite hard. The reality is that all these horrible things that we've read about are the result of people choosing their own way over God's way. For as terrible as some of the things in Judges are, we need to remember that the glory and the perfection and the holiness and the goodness of God is far greater than the the bad, dirty, nasty things we've read about. We need to remember that sin makes things complicated and messy, but righteousness and holiness leads to the opposite. It keeps life clear. It doesn't always keep life clean. It doesn't always keep you free from messiness. But righteousness does keep you on a track that is clear and simple and joyful. It's when we get into sin that messiness creates confusion and starts making decisions harder. When someone lives doing what looks good to them, it is inevitable that they will also live for appearance, what something looks like. And this morning, we're going to read about a renegade priest and his involvement with two groups, both which have a real vested interest in religion and with worship and with things that look very good and pious and holy and right and true, very Israelitish. But both are deluded in their thinking. So I've titled this sermon this morning, Priestly Posturing. We're going to read chapter 17, and then there will also be a couple sections from 18 um, that I'll read as we get along. But please stand with me now. Turn to chapter 17. We're going to read verses 1 through 13 together. This is the word of the Lord. Now there was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. Then he returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah made a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols, and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he was staying there. Then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem in Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, and he found the house of Micah. Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I might find a place. Micah then said to him, Dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. So the Levite went in. The Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his own sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as priest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would search our hearts and and reveal to us the ways in which we are rebellious, the ways in which we have been wayward, the things that we cling to instead of surrendering them to you. Reveal this to us so that we might 
Cast off this old way of living. Cast off the new man and live as Jesus Christ. Live imitating him. We thank you for Christ and the salvation that you've given to us. The salvation that's been offered through his blood. And we pray that there would be no man or woman, boy or girl here, that does not taste Christ's goodness and his salvation. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen. In, the ch- in the chapter that we've just read together, a short chapter, only 13 verses, we've read about two central figures, the man Micah and this unnamed Levite. If you look at verse 1, there's the first little couplet story. There was a man in the hill country of Ephraim named Micah, and then you skip it down to 7. Now, there was a man from Bethlehem of Judah. You can see it there. Two central figures. And in chapter 18, we're going to be introduced to the third figures that we're going to be considering this morning, and that is the, tri- the Danites, tribe of Dan. Well, I'll read a little bit about them later. The first two, well, I'll read about it now, actually. If we were to look over at chapter 18, what we would see is it begins, in those days, again, there was no king in Israel, and in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for them to live in. For until that day, an inheritance had not been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. So the sons of Dan sent from their family five men out of their whole number, valiant men, sons of Zorah and Eshtiel, to spy out the land and to search it. And they said to them, go and search the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and they lodged there. So now, there we've done it. Three figures, three groupings of main characters in chapter 17 and 18. We have Micah, we have the Levite, and we have uh, the tribe of Dan. And these are all going to be interacting and interweaving this morning. These are three separate characters that play three separate roles in this epilogue story, and they paint for us the pathetic state Israel was in as Judges comes to a close. Initially, there are obvious differences. They're all from different tribes. They're all going after different things. Two of them are on this journey trying to find another place, whereas Micah is just all happy to stay where he's at. He's not trying to go anywhere. There are differences between these three characters, but I want to make the case that all three of these characters are actually very, very similar. And this is intentional. I'd say that the author of Judges and God, through him, is instructing us through the similarities found in these three characters. So we're going to walk through them case by case. We're going to start with Micah, and then we're going to go to the unnamed Levite, and then we're going to go to the tribe of Dan, and then we're going to draw some conclusions um, based on what we learn about each of these three groups and the ways in which they're similar. Because God is warning us... uh, through these final chapters about our lives. So we better do the work of looking and seeing what does God want to teach us uh, this morning. So we're going to start with Micah. What do we know about him? What do we know about this guy? Well, in the first two verses of the chapter, we get a sense for the kind of man that he was. He's the sort of man that's willing to steal from his mother, isn't he? It's a strange verse. It doesn't make it clear that he's the one that stole it, but what it says is that it it indicates that he stole it because what it says is when he heard his mother utter a curse on the head of the the culprit who took her 1,100 shekels of silver, he kind of straightened up. That's a big one, Mom. (laughs) Fine, I did it. Here it is. And he gives it back to her. Upon hearing the curse, he decides he's no longer interested in keeping the money, so he confesses that it was he who stole it in the first place. Now, what I want to point out is that there is no mention of conviction or repentance in Micah that's illustrated for us in the text. But rather, we get the sense that he gave that money back because he was afraid of the punishment. And I know that Sometimes fear of punishment does cause repentance or does push us toward repentance, but um, there's, a, there's a lot of troubling things in Micah's life, and we don't get the sense that this was real repentance. He hears the curse, and he thinks, I don't want that to happen to me. And he gives back the money. Now, moving on, we see Micah's mother and Micah himself are 
quite religious. It's a very religious couple of chapters. And even better, they weren't worshiping some of the false gods that we've seen Israelites worship in former chapters. We've read about uh, characters throughout the book of Judges going after Baal and going after the Ashtaroths and going after the gods of the Amalekites and the, and the Midianites. And, and there really isn't much of that in these chapters 17 and 18. Instead, what we see is that they invoke the name of the Lord. When he repents of, or when he says, Mom, it was me, I took the money, and he gives back the money, which is part of repentance, uh, she says, Blessed be you by the Lord. Blessed be you by the Lord. And she is invoking the personal name, not of Baal, not of an Ashtaroth, not of the, the, any of the foreign other gods that she could have been involved with, but she uses the word Lord. She uses the word Yahweh in her vow to dedicate the money that was in her blessing on him, and then she vows to, to dedicate that money back to, again, not the Baals or the Ashtaroths, but the Lord. In verse 5, we see that Micah has a shrine, and he made an ephod, and has household idols, and, and he even goes so far as to take one of his biological sons and consecrate him to be a priest. Again, this wasn't pagan worship that he was sort of copying. It was DIY worship. He's copying all the very things that God, that Yahweh, that the Lord had prescribed to Israel, but things that he had prescribed to take place in the tabernacle with the Levites. So he's DIYing his worship. But it's aimed at the real God. Furthermore, if we skip down and look at Micah's response to the unnamed Levite in verse 13, if you have your Bible, we see that he's desirous that the Lord, that Yahweh, would prosper him. That's his desire. But of course, what haven't I mentioned? I've been sort of going through and cherry-picking some of the, the things that could appear good. But I haven't mentioned that the obvious that they took that offering to God and they, they made it into a graven image, a direct violation of the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship or serve them for I, the Lord, am jealous, visiting the iniquities of the Father on the children. On the, even to the third and fourth generation, showing loving kindness to thousands of those that love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 20 says, you shall not make other gods besides me. Gods of silver and of gold you shall not make. Exodus 34 says, you shall not make for yourself any molten image. They tried to manufacture their DIY homemade religion, despite the fact that God had already given very specific commandments about how and where he was to be worshipped. And Micah's home, Micah's methods were not what God had specified. So there's a lot of troubling things mixed in with Micah's religiosity, isn't there? A lot of things that Causes, if we know the Old Testament, if we know what God had specified about his worship, she causes us to scratch our heads and think, what is going on? But let's move on. Let's look at the Levite. Moving on to the Levite, what can be said about him? Well, we see that he functions as Micah's priest, that he's consecrated, that he is set apart for this work of holy ministry and service at Micah's shrine. And in chapter 17, we aren't told a whole lot more about him. Is there more that we could take note of in this chapter? Well, yes, there actually is. But again, it, it takes a little bit of knowledge from the Old Testament. Knowledge that any Levite should have known. And knowledge that I hope we're aware of. Notice that this unnamed Levite, who is actually named at the end of the story, was a young man living 
or sojourning in Bethlehem. And in verse 8, if you look at your scripture, it says, Then the man, that Levite, departed from the city, from Bethlehem in Judah, where he had been living, to stay wherever he might have found a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, and he came to the house of Micah. In Deuteronomy 18, God had given instructions to Moses regarding the Levites. A Levite was able to leave his place to sojourn and to live in another place, but that place had to be a a, a place that the Lord, that Yahweh chose, okay? And he was there to offer up sacrifice and service in the name of Yahweh, of the Lord, in the company of other fellow Levites, and he was to be rewarded or paid or whatever honorarium was to go to the Levites because, remember, they didn't have a lot of the things, the land and and possessions like the other people because their work was in the temple. He was to be paid the same as was paid, rewarded, given to all of the other Levites that he was to be with in that location that God had chosen. So now you stand back and you have a little bit more context in your mind for the nature of this Levite and what's going on in this chapter, don't you? Don't you? Is that a helpful backboard to, to, bounce, to bounce off of? With these stipulations in mind, we can see that this young man's conduct, though it's not specified, obviously, in chapter 17, was in violation of the instructions that God had given in very important ways. We'll, we'll highlight them. We've already sort of done that. We're going to do it, hopefully, very clearly right now. His intended destination this young man, is not any central gathering place of worship for Yahweh. What are we told? He went out from Bethlehem to go wherever seemed best to him. He was not going to a place that Yahweh had instructed him to go. He was not going to a place where other Levites were gathered to minister before the Lord. He was going where he wanted. The central worshiping place was in Shiloh, but he was going to whatever place he might find. Second, he does not join other Levites, but what happens? He actually displaces an unauthorized priest. Remember that Micah had taken his son and said, you know what, I've got this shrine, I've got this graven image, this molten image. You know what I could really use is a a priest. And so he actually makes his biological son a priest until something better comes along. And he sees this guy and he says, yippee! You say you're a real Levite, a genuine article? I'll take you. That's essentially what he does. And this Levite displaces an illegitimate priest. He's not joining any others in his ministry. Third, he does not serve in the name of Yahweh, but he serves in the name of Micah. If you notice, we'll listen. Well, we may read some some from chapter 18. If If you read chapter 18... There's very little talk of the Lord on the lips of this Levite. It's all about Micah and what he does for Micah. Fourth, he does not choose to serve at a place of Yahweh's choosing, but a place that is chosen for him or offered to him by a man. Fifth, he does not receive the payment prescribed in Deuteronomy 18, but he receives receives room and board agreeing upon the negotiations he's made with Micah. So now with that that sort of background context from Deuteronomy, we recognize, we see a little bit more of the character of this Levite, of his actions, and um, we we start to get a better picture of the thing. Okay, now we're going to move on for for the sake of time. We're going to move on to the final group, the Danites. Now the Danites, I read the opening verse from chapter 18. Um, I'll share a little bit more about that chapter. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to highlight some of the the similarities that the Danites will have with Micah and with this Levite. The Danites, chapter 18 begins by saying, the sons of Dan sent from their family five men of their whole number, valiant men, to Zorah and Eshtiel to spy out the land and to search it. And they said, go and search the land. Now, this reminds me, and it may remind you, of that scene years and years before when Moses had sent out spies into the promised land. 
Go and spy out the land and see what God has for us in this land of promise that's our inheritance. And you remember, the, the, the spies go out and they, they see that the land is wonderful. They see the milk and honey and they see clusters of grapes that take two men to carry. And they see all this wonderful stuff. It's a fruitful land. And yet they also see that those grapes that were heavy enough for two men to carry are that way because the guys are big and they eat a lot of grapes, apparently. There's giants in the land. Right? And they say, we can't cast them out. We're not going to be able to beat them. And it's, it's a vote kind of down to the, the ten and the two. And the ten faithless spies convince Israel, the leaders of uh, the, the Israelite populace, that, you know, this just ain't a good idea. And then you have that faithful coupling of Joshua and Caleb that say we should, should have gone into the land. Okay, now this little slice from Judges 18 really reminds us, it's a throwback to, to what God had initially said. Um, at face value, it seems like a good thing for the Danites to do. But, I want to point this out, it is very important that we remember that the author says, though the author says, an inheritance had not been allotted or literally an inheritance had not fallen to them yet, to take possession among the tribes of Israel. We know that the Danites were homeless. Why? Why were they homeless? Why had they not had a possession fall to them yet? Because at the very beginning of this book, they weren't willing to fight. So what kind of nation is going to fall to you if you don't fight against them? We remember back at the very beginning in, in chapter 1, verse 34, Dan had failed in their military obligation, and therefore we are told that they were confined to the hill country. That was, that was 16 chapters ago. The Danites did not even get into their land, but they were forced, rather, to live this semi-state of nomadic life existence in the mountains. So they're wandering and they're searching for a land to be their own proactively uh, seeking uh, this land appears at face value to be, oh yeah, that's a good thing, but actually it's not so much that as it's coping with the consequences of their former disobedience. It's like, man, we, we got to get some land of our own. We didn't fight 16 chapters ago. We got to do something now because the tribe's growing and we need some flat ground. So that's what's going on here with the Danites. We aren't going to read all of chapter 18, but it really does mirror chapter 17. If you want to read it later today, it'd be great. The Danites head out to find a place to call their home. They're going to end up in a place called Lachish outside the promised land, outside the land that God had given to them. On their way out, they come across the home of Micah. And they recognize the voice of this Levite. And they say in verse 5 of chapter 18, they say, Inquire of God for us, please. They're speaking to the Levite. Inquire of God that we might know whether our way on which we're going will be prosperous. The priest said to them, Go in peace. Your way in which you are going has the Lord's approval. Now the whole thing is just utterly ridiculous. They're asking if God's going to prosper them as they make their way out of the land that they had been told to take. And even more preposterous is the priest's response to them, that they're going to go in peace because they have the Lord's blessing. This is like the pastors today that make promises of God's blessing and God being for you and all the best is yet to come when you're living, sleeping with your girlfriend and you don't care at all. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's preposterous. God does want good for his people, but his people are those that do his will. The Danites end up, in the course of chapter 18, stealing Micah's shrine, Micah's graven image and molten image, and the household idols, just as Micah had stolen the money from his mother. And they end up enticing the Levite to continue his idolatrous DIY worship for them instead of Micah and they go in and settle in a place that God had not given to them. 
Though these three characters, Micah and the Levite and the Danites, are unique from each other, they do share many striking similarities. And the message and the warning to be drawn from their example is the same. I said earlier that I titled this sermon Priestly Posturing, and I did that because that is exactly what all three of these characters are doing. They have a posture, an appearance, a look of being devout toward God. They may even believe that they're doing things that really do please God. They're not worshiping the Baals. They're not worshiping the the Ashtaroth and all the other pagan gods. They're worshiping Yahweh. They're invoking the name of Yahweh. And yet their hearts are far, far from him. Remember earlier I mentioned that mixed into these two final conclusion stories is the fourfold, four times declaration that there was no king in Israel and they, the people did what was right in their own eyes. This statement of condemnation and judgment from God. Both Micah and the Danites are tied by their soliciting a Levite priest in their attempt to get at God. They are exceedingly righteous, uh, religious rather, in their worship. These two chapters are striking because of the emphasis on man's religion. The links that they go to in their desire to observe the religious rites and ceremonies toward God. They are very zealous in their religion. And here, right here, is the warning to us. We're all in church this morning because we are religious. We are. The question is, is your religion God-fearing and biblical, godly, or is it like Micah and the Danites? Micah and the Danites had great external religiosity, but they had no root for the truth in their heart. For all the things they did that looked good, the things that looked spiritual, the things that looked significant, even consecrating your own son and getting a Levite to serve in some podunk location away from Shiloh, the actions of these people's lives were actually opposed to God at almost every step or in every step that they took. Even in their worship, they ran counter to what God had commanded. The problem is, they likely did think that they were doing something right. Again, they aren't serving the Baals and the Ashtaroths. They've got a shrine to the Lord. They've copied God's blueprints down from, from the Pentateuch, and they're just incorporating it in their own backyard. Wow. In fact, we don't have to speculate that they thought that they were doing what's right. We were told that they did what was what. Right. It's just the, that little tag at the end, in their eyes, right? Not in God's eyes. They thought they were doing something really right. And being God's special people, they no doubt assumed that God was happy with them too because this is the way we live. We do assume if we're good with ourselves, we assume God's good with us. That is the way we often live. This wrong thinking is not unique to the time of Judges. This type of sinning can't be closed and locked down when you turn the page from Judges into the book of Ruth. Remember that the Pharisees believed that they were following God, even to the very letter of the law, straining over the jot and the tittle, the little markings of the law, and debating about what those meant. And yet, Jesus condemns them by saying that they are of their father, the devil. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees in the New Testament. Or remember the warning that Jesus gives at the end of his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name did we not cast out demons? And in your name did we not perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There's a sobering verse right there. He doesn't say few or even some will say on that day. Jesus says that many, many will say on that day, that final day of judgment, look at the things we did for you, Lord. Look at all the good we've done. I give to the church. We attend church. We may even lead a Bible study. We put our kids in the best classical Christian school. We support children overseas every month out of our budget. Lord, we, we canceled our Netflix subscription for you. We've worked miracles. And Jesus responds with these words that are incredibly challenging and difficult. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And that's what we see in Judges, isn't it? They thought they were pretty good. Of course, that's only because they served as a law unto themselves, didn't they? What does it mean that there was no king in Israel? But it means that there was no law. There's no authority in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes, which is a different way of saying that lawlessness was rampant. And that is part of the picture of judges that we've seen so clearly as we've gone through it. It means that every man did what was right in his own eyes. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And God is not fooled by the appearance of being religious. He isn't satisfied with posturing. He does not look at the outward appearance. He searches the heart. Given this fact, and given the fact that we have it on Jesus' own testimony to us, that many will end up in eternity thinking that they were quite pious in their religion, when in fact Jesus' verdict is that they were lawless, this morning's text provides us with the opportunity, the opportunity to search ourselves. While it's possible to be deceived, we aren't to live being deceived. And we aren't just to sit back and wonder whether our motives are right or not. This passage is here to help you. This passage is here to help me, to discern our hearts. So I ask you a few things based off the readings that we've, that we've had in, in chapter 17 and some of the things that I referenced from chapter 18. I want to draw out a few things as we search our hearts. I ask you, do you find yourself doing good things as a way of appeasing God or doing good to balance out the bad that you've done? Do you find that you do certain good things because you know in the back of your head you've done other things? Do you give money because you know that you've taken a little money or been dishonest? Think about Micah. He was a thief. He stole as much money from his mother as Delilah had gotten from all the lords of the Philistines for betraying Samson. It was a huge amount of money. He was also an idolater. He set up graven image in direct disobedience of what God had said. And we're not talking about some of these more obscure commandments here, guys. He was breaking very clearly the second commandment. He would have known that. Yet he thought that he had ensured God's blessing because he hired a personal priest. Look at the last verse of chapter 17. God will surely bless me because now I have a priest. If you try to tip the scale on the bad things you've done by doing good things, you're living like Micah. I ask you, do you find yourself more preoccupied with the idea of how God should serve you than rather how you ought to serve God? Again, that last verse very troubling, shows the whole goal of Micah's efforts. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing as I have procured a Levite priest. The purpose of his religious efforts is not to get access to God so that he can serve God, but it's to get access to God so that God could do for him what he wanted. I'd ask you, are you satisfied in God? Can you be satisfied in God alone or do you need someone else or something else beyond him? 
One of the striking things about all three groups in these chapters is that none of them are satisfied. From Micah's thievery to his replacement of his son for a legit priest, to the, to the Levite not being satisfied with his homeland, to the Danites not being content to follow God in his commands to conquer the promised land, to the Levite being so easily wooed by the Danites that he leaves his initial home with Micah, a lack of satisfaction, a lack of contentment, a lack of being okay with where things are, is notable. Do you find satisfaction in God, in his approval of you, in his plans for you, or do you want more? Are you happy to have God, but you're always actually longing for other things, things that can help fulfill this area of your life or make you happier in that area of your life. God is all satisfying and his plans for us are perfect and righteous and good. Do you find satisfaction in God? Do you give everything or do you only consecrate a portion of your life? One of the little details we're given about Micah and really Micah's mother is that when Micah confesses that he had stolen those 1,100 shekels of silver, his mother says, I holy, not holy, H-O-L-Y, but holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, totally dedicate this silver from my hand to the Lord. But just one verse later, and we're not, we didn't talk about it at the beginning, we read, When he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to a silversmith. Now, I have never been really that great at math, but I know that 200 is a whole lot less than 1,100, right? I wholly dedicate this to the Lord. Here's 200. Go make make an idol. She hedges her bets, giving some of her wealth to God, but holding most of it back. It's easy to use a lot of God language and calling on the name of the Lord and claiming Jesus is Lord, but in reality to only obey him in certain areas, certain sectors of your life, preserving other areas in which we live to do what we wish. Or we obey him only partially in areas, keeping back some of the money, as it were, for ourselves or time or anything else. Money is just a placeholder for so many things. Jumping off this point, are there areas in your life that are good and yet other areas terrible? We, we, we are confronted with the reality that if we are consecrating to God all of life, it doesn't mean that every area of life is going to be easy, that we're not going to have problems. But what it means is that he has access and authority over you in every area. So it means that you can't live a life coming to church on Sunday and tithing, but then going back home and treating your husband or your wife or your children with sinful attitudes and still claiming that you're surrendering all to God. We come here and we sing, I surrender all, and then we go out and we live like we please. It doesn't work that way. You're being like Micah's mother. I wholly surrender all of this money to God. Here's 200. We can't live that way. We shouldn't live that way. Does your life seem to lack power? Again here, we're, we're considering whether we're like these men, these characters in the story. These questions are helpful, helping us to consider whether we're like them. Does your life lack power? There is a form of godliness that looks good. It looks the part, but it does not have the power. If you think about Micah's story, it certainly seems to be one of powerlessness. He ends up running after the Danites in chapter 18 after they come and they they take all his stuff. They entice the Levite to go with them. And then he, he realizes what they've done and he goes out after them and he says, what are you doing? And they say, you better step back, boy, or you're gonna get, you're, you're gonna get punished. And he goes, Oh, you've taken everything from me. He goes back to his house. That's the last we hear. I mean, it's powerless. It's it's so, uh, it just, (laughs) it's sad. The Danites are also powerless. They moved to to Laish, and they set up their idolatrous worship there. And for years to come, even in the reign of Rehoboam, David's grandson, or Jeroboam, rather, 
The area of Dan, where they've gone, is going to be the, the area where all the false worship starts under Jeroboam's reign. That's 1 Kings 2, or 12, rather. Talk about powerlessness. And then, if you want to do some serious cross-references, in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, Dan isn't even mentioned as one of the tribes that's going to be in heaven. They don't seem to share in the power of Jesus' salvation. All of these things point to a life of posturing rather than of power. They point to a life of seeking after a posture rather than after the thing itself, which is the perfection of our Lord Jesus Christ as our salvation and the life that accompanies that realization, a life of overflowing love and gratitude and obedience to Christ. And so the men of our chapter were seeking to worship God, seeking to worship Yahweh, but it was on their own terms. It was on their own terms, all three of them, on their own terms. If we are to learn from our passage, we must abandon any sort of posturing, any sort of priestly posturing where we dress up what we do to make it look like something that it's not. And we must be committed to right and true worship. So as we close, just a few things. Right true worship is not a show. It's not about appearance. It's about reality. It is about your heart. It's not based on what you think is right. All those people did what was right in their own eyes. It is not about what you think it's right. It's based and rooted in what the Word of God has declared. It's not about getting what we want from God. It's about giving to God our whole lives. We give our all. We don't hold anything back. We are, we are called to give our lives as a living sacrifice. It's all-consuming, claiming every area of your life. It's our heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving God, being devoted to God. It's all of those things. And so in chapter 17 and 18, we are called to abandon all appearances for reality. And make that reality what God says is right and true and good and lovely and pleasing to him. That's the warning. All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the depths at which it searches us. And we pray that we would honor you, that we would love you, that we would cast off the desire to appear like a thing, rather than to strive after being the thing, that we would cast off our self-righteousness and cling to the righteousness of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.